Welcome to the Connect the Dots podcast. Jeffrey Klein has conversations with a diverse array of successful people, sharing their stories to educate, inspire, and entertain. Here is your host, Jeffrey. My guest today is Will McCormick, a director, writer, producer, and actor. He recently won the Academy Award for Animated Short, If Anything Happens, I Love You, which he co-wrote and co-directed with Michael Govier. It's a story about parents grieving the death of their daughter killed in a school shooting. The film is currently streaming on Netflix. Will was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Celeste and Jesse Forever, co-written with Rashida Jones. Other writing credits include Toy Story 4 and A to Z on NBC. He's currently adapting Neil Schusterman's novel Challenger Deep for Disney+. Will and his producing partner Rashida Jones' company La Train Train produced the hit TV show Claws on TNT. They also produce Kevin Can F Himself, a new series on AMC starring Annie Murphy. As an actor, Will won Lucille Luttrell Award for his performance in Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Paula Vogel's play A Long Christmas Ride Home. He's appeared in dozens of films and TV shows, including The Sopranos and Brothers and Sisters. Please welcome Will. Hey, how are you? It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. I like to start at the beginning. So where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Uh, I was born in Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, the Garden State in Union County. And my father um, had a couple different jobs. He worked for General Motors and then he had a couple of jewelry stores. And then eventually he had his own ice cream stores, uh, homemade ice cream and chocolate called William J. Sweet, which was delicious. Is and that, no, does it exist anymore? They do, but he's retired and he's there. He's moved on from the ice cream. So uh, I, I have to ask, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Coffee. Coffee. Coffee shake from William J. Sweet was my go-to. Um, and my mom was a mom. And then when um, I was around 12, she went back to school and got her master's in social work and uh, worked at the Carrier Foundation in New Jersey, which is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center. And then she opened a private practice and she's also retired, but she was a therapist for decades. So as a kid, when you were growing up, you had, you know, it sounds like an entrepreneur dad and, um, were there certain things, you know, if you, you know, think of yourself as being eight or nine and someone says, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was the, the response? Was it an actor or was it an astronaut? What, what, what was Will's dream? Shortstop for the New York Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> and that dream did not come true. Uh, did you play baseball? I did play baseball. Um, and um, I loved baseball films. Uh, my dad and I were connected through baseball um and field of dreams and uh the natural and bull durham were gigantic films for me as a kid and and i think i loved them because i was with my dad when i saw them and they were about baseball but as i've gotten older and, and you know became an adult and a storyteller i realized how brilliant the stories were so there was something embedded there in those stories that that resonated later on in life whereas you're a kid you're like oh yeah let's see the baseball movie and then you you, you get older and you, you begin to study craft and, and screenplays and you think, wow, these are brilliantly woven stories. Um, but yeah, athletics were huge for me when I was a kid. I was, you know, on every baseball team and, and my dad was a coach and it was a way for us to connect and, and bind and uh, be close to one another. Well, I have twin, almost 16 year old daughters and a 12 year old son who are all pretty athletic. Mm -hmm. And my one of my daughters, Lucy, actually plays shortstop for her school uh, softball team. So I, uh, I took, so, and my daughter Gemma is a lefty and played first base. And so when they, they used to play competitive uh, softball and I loved when someone would hit the ball to the shortstop, Lucy, and she would pick it up and throw it to her sister for the out. It was ah. something wonderful about that. And then my that son is, uh, unfortunately, my son, boring. I bond with my son over basketball. You know, we yeah. both love basketball. We love to play basketball and to be able to, go outside and literally shoot around with him is, is just a joy. Um, Are you Sixer fans? Huge. I'm, I'm hurting today because of, uh, hopefully by the time this airs, uh, the pain will be done. Um, but yes, I, I've been a, a Sixers fan. Uh, I was very fortunate they won a championship when I was a kid. Um, mm. And I wish that for my 
children. So we got the Eagles one. So that was a good thing. We got a championship. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big, big uh, Sixers fan. 1982 to the Sixers? 82, one? 83. Yeah. Dr. J, Moses Malone. They were, they were awesome. So I, you said, you, you know, you're really into sports. So did you look up to, uh, you know, a Yankee or someone in, that was a role model for you growing up? You know, <laughs> I mean, my favorite player when I was little was Don Mattingly um, because he had the sweetest swing I'd ever seen. And he was a left-handed first baseman like your daughter. Um, but then when Derek Jeter came in, um, changed my world. Jeter was my favorite athlete ever. And I, I just loved how he played the game and how hard he worked. And he was a perfectionist and uh, just wore those pinstripes well, you know, Um but uh, yeah, sports were a way for me. I was very active and, and, um, and physical. Um, and that was a way for me to feel um, like, honestly, like I was good at something, you know? Um, I never became Derek Jeter, but it was There's something- There's still time. There's still time. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Not a bad movie idea. Middle-aged uh, guy in LA who's a screenwriter who tr tries out for the New York Yankees. I think movie a couple times, so we can put a new spin on it. Sure. Um, but it, you know, I my I, I was the third. It's it's interesting to think about sibling order and what your roles are and who you think you are and and what sort of box you put yourself in. But I remember even being young and thinking, oh, I'm I'm the athletic one. You know, like I should be good at baseball. Because, well, Bridget's a genius, my eldest sister, and, and Mary's so funny. So I guess I should be good at, at baseball. And, uh, you know, it's kind of limiting as a 12-year-old to think that this is what I do. But it really was. I mean, I was obsessed with baseball. I used to make um, scrapbooks and cut out Sports Illustrated's and make collages of baseball players. It was kind of um, an obsession. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Scorpio and... Uh, I, when I love things, I love them to the fullest. I'm very passionate. Um, emotion and, and passion, uh, there's never a paucity of passion for me. Like when I dive into something, I dive into it. And then actually, I, I think when I went to college, I started to act and, and I, I, you know, I, I got into it. I got a part in a Shakespeare play in college. And there was something about acting that felt similar to sports in that it was physical and it was live and it was different all the time and you could practice and it was a team sport. So there was something that was really felt like a really awesome baton from athletics to theater that was a great transition for me. Well, speaking of theater and, and kind of storytelling, was there anyone growing up that was really a great storyteller and kind of what made them so good? Um, I, I think I originally fell in love with story and stories from my mom. Um, she was a writer also, she moonlighted as a writer for our local newspaper, but I remember my mother being the first person who introduced me to story and I don't know, I have such fond memories of being a kid and reading a lot with my mother and having her read to me and um, slowly and talking about characters. And I would remember as a kid, my mom wrote all the time and I would find little poems on scraps of paper and on my uh, lunch bag. And she just had a real affinity, affection and talent for language. And I think probably one of the reasons why I'm a professional screenwriter today is my mom gave me the belief that words were important and language is beautiful and that story had power. I love that. So obviously your mom was a big influence of you. Was there anyone else, uh, you know, when you started thinking about acting or and writing that was a real influence on the kind of writer you wanted to become, what kind of actor you wanted to become? Yeah, I mean, there, there, were, there were films when I was little that left an imprint on me um, that were not kid movies. I mean, um, you know, Ordinary People uh, was a gigantic film for me as a kid. Uh, Paris, Texas, Tender Mercies. Um, you know, Ordinary People um, probably left the biggest imprint on me as a kid. I had gone through loss as a kid and had lost people. And um, there was something about that film that dealt with grief in a way that was 
I'm not in Coet in me at the time. I'm still grappling with that as an adult. And, you know, the animated short film that we made is about grief. And I, I, I think in, for writers, there are sort of recursive themes that you work on your entire life and you keep circling them. And there was something about that movie when I was little that talked about loss that made me love stories about grief and loss. Um, you know, Paris, Texas is a Vin Vendors film starring Harry Dean Stanton. And I love, and Sam Shepard co-wrote the screenplay. Um, but I remember that film when I was little and just how laconic and the parsimony of it and uh, the spareness and Harry Dean Stanton gave this performance that was tattooed into my soul. And then actually when I moved to California, um, I went to my sister's house and she said, you'll never guess who my neighbor is. It's Harry Dean Stanton. Wow. Yeah. And I went over and I knocked on his door and um, he gave me a whiskey and uh, I didn't leave for a couple of years, but he told me, he regaled me with all these stories of Marlon Brando and Al Pacino and all of these incredible films that he had worked on, but he was just a American icon. And uh, I learned so much from him just talking about films and story and acting. Um, and you know, Tender Mercies was another big film for me as a kid, which is also about loss and sobriety. I, I didn't know at the age of 12 that I would become an alcoholic, but I did. And I'm sober now 14 years, but that's one of the right. best films about mercy and alcoholism and the life you were spot thought you were lived, but the life that you were given is actually fuller than the life that you thought that you were supposed to have. And there was something so um, tender and compassionate about those stories. So, you know, you watch those movies when you're little and you think, and, and you know, I grew up in a time where you ride your BMX bike to uh, the video store and I was into weird movies. I was into foreign films and um, I was into sort of indie film at a young age. Um, I'm still into weird films. I, I struggle to see Marvel movies and I struggle to see commercial films. Sometimes I check them out because I wanna know why they're popular or what's happening. But the films that I try to write and that I wanna work on are usually not commercial. Yeah, it's, it's for me, I adore film and have mm -hmm. since I was a little kid. And, and I, my, I kind of run the gamut. So I like the popular movies and I like the very obscure movies that people are like, you know, what is that? You know, and, and it's funny because I have a good friend who is, is the opposite of you. He loves the Marvel big action stuff. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was always a struggle to get him to watch a foreign film mm -hmm. uh, or watch a movie in black and white. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's, you know, my joy now is in sharing movies that I love with my children. And yeah. I'm almost ready to show them a foreign movie i haven't really then there's two on the on the top of the list one mm. of my favorite movies ever is cinema paradiso oh. um, if you like oh. movies how can you not like that movie right um, and then on the kind of opic extreme is run lola run mm. um, because i think it's so kinetic in, in the way that it, it's shot and and just and then emily i guess is another i, I like a lot of foreign, yeah and i love you know a lot of american films as well we've shown them you know mm -hmm. my favorite movie is probably shawshank redemption yeah. um which i showed them recently and i showed them forrest gump and um schindler's list and so we're we're, we're goodwill hunting i think is the next on the list so um mm -hmm. but i want them to have that breadth of of films because i think the stories are amazing and i i'm a i was a big film noir fan and casablanca and you know so um yeah, it, the textures of all those different films. I think there is something about those indie films that um, allow you to dig in deeper to some of the character mm -hmm. studies and things that in kind of pop films, you just, it's its a little surface. Um, mm -hmm. Will, what was your first paying job? My first paying job ever? ever. Like not, not even in the business? No, no, not in the business ever. Oh, I worked at... Um, uh athlete's foot in the woodbridge mall in new jersey and i was Telling a sneakerhead and i spent every single paycheck i gave it directly back to athlete's foot and i was we had a sneaker obsession in high school we we so jordans were they kind of like uh or was jordans were tricky for me because i grew up a nick fan and uh -huh. he 
was for the Bulls. Terrorized the Knicks. And I have a lot of trauma from um, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Yet the sneakers were so cool. And he was the most stylish, uh, most powerful athlete on the planet at that moment. So yeah, I had some Jordans too, even as a Knicks fan. Yeah, I, I, you know, Sixers fan. Uh, it's and I, I have that issue now because my son, Ethan, uh, huge sports fan. His favorite player is Giannis on the Bucks. Oh wow! So and he, I think he's had Kyrie's and he's had like so he's had every shoe other than the Sixers. Keep waiting for Joel Embiid's shoe to like come on, let's go. And um, but yeah, well, and, and then so you. But the sneaker obsession, which came, I assume, later when you're where people were selling Yeezys, you know, in the last yeah. few years for thousands of dollars. Um, I don't I don't quite get that. I, I you know, no, I've, I've dropped out. Now I just wear simple Jack Purcells with. You so know. you go you go to college uh, East Coast, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're from the East Coast uh, as someone who was interested in the film industry and moving to the West Coast. When did you first kind of consider pursuing, okay, I'm going to go and try and a career in entertainment, whether it was writing or, or acting, you know, that's that a kid from, you know, New Jersey to go and be, be in the film industry is not always an easy path. How did you decide and what were the path to get there? You know, I, I think I got lucky because, well, it depends, I guess, on how you define luck because, um, I did a play in college and uh, I was a junior and um, I, it was a little play in a little theater at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, I blacked out on stage, not drunk. Um, I had a creative blackout and I, I don't know what happened but I fell so deeply into the play that I, 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 don't, I didn't remember an hour and a half, I felt that connected and that fallen into that I sunk so deeply into that world maybe I was terrible (laughs) but I remember feeling um how do how can I feel that again that was the best feeling in the world and I was going through a hard time then um as I think a lot of young adults do trying to figure out who they are and if they have anything to say and feeling pressure um and I remember thinking oh this I I don't know I don't know how I fit in here, but I know I want to be a part of story for the rest of my life. And it was instant. I mean, it was overnight. You know, I I woke up the next day and I knew that I would be involved in storytelling for the rest of my life. Um, And then I did every, from there on out, I did, you know, I was an English literature major and a theater minor, but I did every single play possible. I worked at, there's a, phenomenal movie theater at Trinity called Cine Studio. And they play all the best independent films and foreign films and I worked there. So I saw every single movie for free. I saw hundreds of films. Um, you know, I saw your, your films there, Run Lola Run, Lola, Run and Amelie and Chocolat and uh, uh, Dazed and Confused. And I saw all of these films and thought, oh God, uh, you know, I have a, two sisters. One, her name is Bridget, and she's a judge. She's the chief justice of the Supreme Court of Michigan. And uh, I have another sister, Mary, who's a very talented, successful actress. So when I was in school at Trinity, Mary's a bit older, and she was in New York City acting and, and um, had made some headway. And I think when I graduated, she got, she played opposite Howard Stern in the film Private Parts. Mm-hmm which was the number one comedy in America. It was a big hit. And, uh, and it was really cool. And I think Mary knew the rigors of the business and how hard it was. And I think was sort of protective of me and saying, this is great, but this premiere that you're at at Madison Square Garden is not really what it's like. It's a daily grind and it's 99% rejection. And I got a, I got a ground ball with eyes here. Like I got one to go through. But this is really hard. So I think Mary, but it, but I did know someone who was in the business and that was helpful, you know? And my sister moved to New York City and literally bought an act, bought a book called How to Be a Working Actor and became a working actor and brilliant actress and, and super successful. And uh, so I had, some, I had someone that I knew, was that? Have you ever done something with her, a project with her? 
I, I have actually, she was on a TV show on USA Network called In Plate Sight. And um, I got to play her arch nemesis on that show, this FBI agent who they named McCormick, my last name, <laughs> who's dogged about taking down um, Mary. And uh, it was a fun, it was fun to play opposite each other. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what would you consider your kind of big break? You know, so you, you know, your sister's involved in it. You start doing, you know, all the plays and you see all the movies. When did you like, was it getting an agent? Was it a, a role you first, a, a TV or film role that you're like, oh my God, I've made it. When did you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm now on my, on my way? As an actor? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the late 90s, I was working at a bar in um, downtown called The Room on Sullivan Street. And I was, I was um, acting and auditioning and trying to hustle any work I could. And I got a small part in a TV show called The Sopranos. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> no one had heard of it. I thought, oh, wow, this is a, this is a gangster show. And wow, this script is really good. And I played um, Lorraine Bracco's son, Dr. Melfi. And I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is pretty good. And then it came out. And uh, it was a it was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, and I I think I did four or five episodes, but I couldn't walk down the street without people saying, "Oh, you're you're Jason Melfi," you know. But I was still, you know, I was also working a catering company, so I was serving people food right. on trays, you know, serving them mushroom phyllo bundles with champagne wasabi dipping sauce. But also, they were like, "You're Jason. Here's my shrimp cocktail." So it was a weird sort of thing where I was slightly famous, but also working the party. Um, but I remember thinking like, wow, I'm on TV and uh, I'm in New York City and it's the late 90s and this is one of the best places in the world right now, you know? What about as a writer? As a writer, definitely um, my friend, my best friend, Rashida Jones and I wrote a screenplay called Celeste and Jesse Forever. And we had both gone through, you know, bad breakups and sad breakups and painful breakups. And we wanted to write about it. Um, and it, you know, it's not the most original concept in the, in the world, but it did feel authentic, you know, and it sort of struck a chord amongst people in town who read it, where there was something zeitgeisty about it, where a lot of people we knew were sort of best friends with their first love and it got complicated and they were unable to move on because they were still sort of tethered to this relationship. And something about that script kind of got a lot of attention around town. It got on the blacklist, which is a list in Hollywood for the best unproduced screenplays in town. And then we ended up setting it up at a bunch of studios that shuttered. Fox Atomic, it was at an Overture and all these you know, micro indie, micro uh, studio companies. And then we ended up making it for uh, not a ton of money, um, you know, and uh, it got into Sundance and um, I was signed by United Talent Agency and Kia Kiyadi, who's still my agent to this day. And my champion, love Kia. love Kia. And that film gave me a writing career. So I, I often think that, you know, you look at the business in, the, in its totality and, you know, I did okay as an actor, but I never got the break as an actor that I wanted, but I did get it as a screenwriter. So. I, I kept knocking on different doors and I finally got into the house and it was not the door that I thought I was going to go through, but I got into the house. That reminds me, one of my favorite quotes comes from a John Lennon song, you know, beautiful boy, which, I, which is mm -hmm. life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. So uh, I definitely resonate with that where you think you're going to be like, I never thought I was going to live in England or, you know, right. I'm a British girl um, and those happy accidents that get you to where you want to go. Speaking of which, so what do you think is the most surprising place you found yourself, whether that's a location or a gate talking to this person, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that a younger version of yourself, like, I can't believe I'm here or talking to this person. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 I mean, I, the, the Academy Awards, you know, growing up watching the Oscars on TV and, you know, watching Billy Crystal host and, I, I think I was at the Oscars this year, you know, after we won, I was backstage and I was in shock. 
And um, I was just standing there and, and Pete Doctor walked up to me because he had just won and Pete wins all the time. But I, I, I know Pete because I worked at Pixar for a couple of years and, you know, he walked up to me and, you know, we're standing there both holding Academy Awards and um, he said, I loved your film. And, and we just talked about movies and about the night. And I thought, wow, this is, this is really cool. I'm standing next to one of my idols. And we're both, you know, holding Oscars. And, you know, I didn't think that at Athlete's Foot at Woodbridge, New Jersey, you know, a couple decades ago. Uh, before I forget, and I, and I probably should say, I love the, the film. Oh, um, thanks. Uh, really powerful stuff. Uh, and I, I read something that um, you, you stated that all stories can be told in animation. Um, so why is animation so powerful and what makes it different to sort of live action in your opinion? I think it's an exciting, great question. I think it's an exciting time to be in animation. Um, you know, I'm pretty passionate about uh, storytelling and animation. And I think our animated short film, If Anything Happens, I Love You is proof that all stories can be told in animation. Um, you know, I wrote this script with my dear friend, Michael Govier, and we wanted to write about grief and we wanted to write about loss. And we sort of came up with this idea of these uh, Jungian shadows who could be these, who could guide us through this story. And people loved the script. And they said, wow, this is beautiful, but it's too sad for animation and no one's going to watch it. And I kept thinking, I don't, I disagree. I just, I don't think that you're right. And um, we just kept going. And like any independent film, um, you know, we sort of recklessly financed the Atomatic ourselves. And then we had proof like, oh, this is beautiful. And then we had people jump on board like Laura Dern and Gary Gilbert, and then finally Netflix, who was awesome. Um, but for me, it was proof that um, animation is not a genre, it's a medium. And it's just another medium to tell stories. And for If Anything Happens, I Love You specifically, the reason why we told that story in animation is because Michael and I believe that animation was best medium to tell that story. That you could only capture the sort of delicacy and the nuance of those shadows in animation. And that that story is so hard and so difficult that a live action version of that may distance the story from an audience. And there's something about animation that gives you sort of a coziness and an intimacy that, that grabs the viewer's hand and, and puts them in the car and sets them on their way. So, you know, historically in America, animation has been relegated to the kiddies table. And um, I think one of the reasons why Pixar wins the Academy Award every year is because they don't talk down to their audience. And there's a couple moments in every Pixar moment movie that are really sophisticated and really deep. And if kids get them, great. If they don't, one day they will. But um, I just love the, the, the bar that they've set. And um, I'm excited to try to tell those stories in animation. And I do feel like the tide is turning. So I think... Um, I think it's going to be an exciting time in American animation. Well, yeah, and I would agree. I think that the most successful animations in Pixar being the kind of gold standard is that the, the story appeals to both kids and grownups. Yeah. Um, and, and, ha and that's not an easy feat. Um, but I think the intention to tell a story without just because it happens to be in this medium, it needs to be, you know, kiddie. It's just right. not true. And again, your, your film has proven that as well as the ones, you know, others that have been made. Um, do you think that being good at telling story is a skill you can develop or is it kind of something you're born with or not? Uh, <laughs> that's such a hard question. Look, I think that there's in anything, I think that there's some innate God-given gifts, right? Um, uh, you can either hit the fastball or you can't, right? Um, with that said, the most successful people I know, uh, work really, really hard at it. And, and I think, um, I think Ira Glass said this in some interview I heard recently, but, you know, when you first start out as a writer, your, your talent, your, your taste is far ahead of your talent. 
So, you know, you're watching all these films and you're thinking, oh God, that's, that's good. I want to do that. And then of course you write something and it's terrible. And most people give up or quit by the time their taste, their talent can catch up to their taste. You know, when I went to work at Pixar, I thought, oh God, they, they've made some of the most beautiful, most iconic films ever. I mean, Toy Story 3, I, I ended up going out on the curb. I remember where I saw it. I was in Oakland, California. I went out on the curb and I sat there and I wept. You know, and I thought, wow, an animated film could could make me sit on the curb outside. I couldn't even walk. I thought, oh, God, that is heavy. You know, it's about letting go. And I thought about my own childhood, my relationship with my parents. And it was so deep and up the first, you know, 10 minutes of up crush you, you know. But there's something about Pixar where I thought, oh, do they have some kind of like magic story dust here? There's a room where they keep this magic story dust. They don't. They just work really, really, really hard and they turn over every stone and they get to the heart of something. Um, so sure, um, I would say a little bit of talent is helpful, but I would say it's 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration, truly. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we talked about Michael Jordan earlier and one of the best basketball players ever. And people say, oh my God, he must be just a naturally gifted athlete which he is, but he also worked harder than any other basketball player had done probably to that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and there's something about art or athletics or any job where we're our own worst enemy and we're sort of designed that way. Right. Like, you know, this is something I work on in therapy and, and through meditation and through sobriety, but like, you know, my worst critic is me, mm. but you know, I've been writing so long now that I'm pretty kind to myself, you know, to talk about another great basketball player. I heard this interview with Kobe Bryant when he was alive. And, um, you know, this reporter asked him, um, well, why do you, you, cause he takes 10,000 shots a day, jump shots. And why do you, why do you take so many shots? Is it so you make more? So your field goal percentage goes up and he said, no, I take so many shots so that when I miss, I don't feel it. And I thought, how cool. Like, and you, you can see that as evidence in his game, he could be four for 20, but he's not afraid to take the 21st shot. And there's something about writing where it's just a muscle and you develop it. And the more you write, the less critical, you know, today I'll be writing. I write every day. Now I'm on a film. I write every day from 12 to four. That's usually my hours, my schedule of the movie. And at the end of the day, I won't think, oh, I wrote really well today. Or I won't think, oh, I wrote really poorly today. I'll think, oh, I went and did my job today. Mm. And tomorrow I'll get up and go do it again. And then in, you know, six more weeks, I'll have a draft. And then in eight more, I'll have another draft and then it'll be done, you know? So it becomes um, something that's like breathing. Right. Second nature, habit, process, all those things that you yeah. need. And I try and teach that to my children. And sometimes it's like, you may not be good at this today because yeah. today is day one. But if you keep at it and you practice, you inevitably should get better and so I always look at them and say progress so my son is learning to play golf and mm -hmm. there are kids who are a lot better and I, and I said to him okay you've been doing golf for a couple months are you better than when you started mm -hmm. and he says of course I'm like right because you've hit lots of golf balls and and I think that's true of any activity that you want to pursue now mm -hmm. you may eventually hit a ceiling you know he's not going to mm -hmm. be Tiger Woods and I'm okay with that mm -hmm. um but Whatever it is you want to pursue that. And again, I think, you know, finding that passion helps put in those hours. You know, sure. if you're going to, if you're going to put in those hours, which you, I think need you to be successful, you need to make sure it's something you want, you're interested in have a passion for. 100% because at the end of the day, I also think uh, zeal and love for the thing is maybe more important than hard work and, and talent. You know, how are you spending your days? I mean, for me, it was a no brainer. I thought, oh gosh, I love movies so much. I mean, I don't mean to be dramatic, but movies kind of saved my life. Like if I could be a part of storytelling and get paid to do it, that would be the coolest thing ever. You know, I just knew that I was like, I, I, I would get, I would pay to do it. You know, I love it that much. So I think I'm like, I got lucky in that way. Uh, I'll share with you, since this, you referenced luck a couple of times. And I, I always, if I ever write one of my business books, 
there's a concept that I believe in, which is called smart luck. Mm -hmm. So dumb luck is you're walking down the street and there's $5, you pick it up, put in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Smart luck is you want to be an actor? Take some acting classes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, that, that idea of, um, you know, putting yourself in a position to be successful. Um, yeah. You know, and I think it's um, chance favors the bold and, you know, things. Um, yes, yeah, so I think uh, that's a lot about it. I, I want to go to the Academy Award for a moment. I'm sure you've talked about this over the last several months. But so you mentioned about that being kind of the most surprising place. For you, what was the highlight of that experience? Of the Academy Awards? Yeah. Um, honestly, it was after uh, looking at my phone and seeing how many people had video, um, had uh, filmed themselves watching us win and sending me their reactions and um, showing me photos of the TV and of them reacting. And I don't know, it's like you, you forget that people love you, you know, at times because you're working and you're trying to figure out your day. And, and so many people reached out to me and I felt so connected to so many old friends and family and people were so happy for us. And the film landed in a way for people where they were really rooting for it. And so I think I felt connected in a way that I didn't realize or had forgotten that I was, but it gave me, I don't know, a connectivity to, to all these people who I hadn't talked to in a while. And um, I just felt, I felt really full. Well, I have to jealously say um, that, that, sorry, selfishly say that I like that you've brought up connectivity on the Connect the Dots podcast. I just wanted to put that up. <laughs> See how I did that? So, so well done you. Um, so you won an Academy Award, which is kind of the pinnacle of anyone in the entertainment industry. Mm. Um, and by most measures, people would say you're a success. Mm -hmm. How does Will McCormick define success? God, that's such a hard question, but such a great question. You know, um, I, I uh, look, I am honored to be an Academy Award winner and I will not be opposed to if I'm any other nomination again. But, you know, the truth is um, I got to a place in my life that I had to get to, which was I don't define success by how well I do professionally because I'm already successful professionally without an Academy Award or with one or without one. I wake, every, I wake up every day and I do my work. I love it. Um, I've gotten pretty good at it. Um, I only work on projects that I believe in. And, and I don't say that because I'm, I'm virtuous in any way. I actually think that that's my best strategy for success. So I had gotten to a place in my life where I felt, oh, I, I'm a professional screenwriter. I live in Hollywood and um, I pay my mortgage this way. And um, I've been doing this now for a long time. So at this stage of my life, um, I really try to define success in um, how I work with people and how I treat people and what type of dad I am and how much presence I have and what kind of husband I'm being. And am I putting my phone down at the end of the day and saying work is done and now it's family time. So, you know, when I was young, I was dying to be successful and, um, you know, sobriety is a big part of my story and, and, and getting sober and becoming a writer, um, which always was always a secret passion for me. But I think as I've gotten older um, and that happens with time, I like to look at sort of what type of person I am rather than sort of what accolades I will or won't get, because even winning an Academy Award, um, it's still hard. You're still freelance. You're still looking for your next gig. It will always be hard, you know? Um, so I, I try to measure sort of my, the humanity rather than um, my professional success. A healthy perspective, I would say. I hope until I'm banging my head against the wall in my act two that I can't figure out later. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a, a, an equally hard question. So what inspires you? As a writer? Mm -hmm. well, you, uh, you take it how you want in life as a writer. You know, I am, I am uh, 
I, I, you know, at Pixar, they used to say, um, you admire a character for their strengths, but you fall in love with them for their vulnerabilities. And so I, I admire when people are able to be really authentic and really uh, real and um, to, to get into the difficult things that are, that are hard to talk about, which is, I think I've been able to access that through story. Um, you know, story is a way for all of us to um, deal with pain. Story is a way to, I mean, actually story is a way to deal with trauma. You know, when we have things in the past, whether someone died or um, whatever sort of difficulty we've had, we build stories around it to make the past livable, to be able to walk through it and say that was then and this is now. And the way that I can deal with then is let's build a story around it and have a meaning and have power. And the only way to do that and make it good and make it real and make it productive is to get into the, the ground and the soil on it until that. So I admire courage and I think it takes courage to get into those, those, that messiness. So I feel like I try to do that in my work. And I think sometimes I, I work in life, you know, mesh. So um, I think it's a willingness to do the dirty work and to get inside of something, however you can get there. Uh, very deep. So I'm just taking a moment to, to let it sit. But um, yeah, it's, it's, I think, again, characters revealed in those harder moments, you know, in those rainy days is when you find out who you are, not in when everything was sunny and-, and Yeah, you know, look, I when I meet people, I like to hear how they fell in love, but I really wanna know how their heart got broken. You know, like I wanna know what that felt like because I know what that feels like and I think that that's the moment in our lives when we're in pain, when we have resolve and we have courage and we have resurrection. And there's so much that comes out of that, that, that just makes us human and makes us strong, that that's always the intersection for me of like what I'm trying to understand. So like, I wanna hear how you fell in love, but I also wanna hear when you actually got crushed. Like- <laughs> Fairly uh, dark, but we'll leave it. <laughs> so, like, but out of that, but out of that, look what grows, you know? I mean, in Ojai last year, you know, my wife and I got married in Ojai and there were these incredible fires there and, it, you know, horrible, horrible wildfire. And out of the wildfire rose all of these incredible flowers, you know? So it's amazing what comes like, you know, it's that, that part to me is interesting as a storyteller. Well, a lot of, you know, I talk about story a lot with people and people talk about, well, what makes a good story? And, 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 I, and I often reference that fundamentally a story has to have conflict and mm -hmm. therefore can't be a happy, you know, can't just start up with everything great and it stays that way. Right. Not a good story, maybe a good life, but not a good story. Yeah. So I think that's what you're, you're, you're talking about is the fact that if you don't have that conflict, you know, you won't be able to, the, the, the contrast between the good times and the bad times. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have bad times, you, you won't appreciate it when, when you get through it. Um, 100%. So, Will, if you could go back and give your 21-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Be kind to yourself. You know, I, I, I think that the... I think that I was so hard on myself um, in every way, in, as a writer, as a, as a young man. And I think I was my own worst enemy. And, and, and my sort of trajectory as, a, as, a, as an adult, as a father, and as a, as a writer and as a storyteller is just being softer myself and being more patient and knowing that rejection and, um, and uh, not knowing what to do next and not sure getting lost is part of the process mm -hmm. and to embrace that and be patient and kind to yourself. Yeah, uh, I, again, being a father and I see my children being, they're you know, critical of themselves, whether it's in sports or school or social, uh, it, you know, like 
yeah unfortunately i think that comes with some maturity and and it would be nice yeah. if you could learn that younger to to just kind of give yourself a break yeah yeah the world will the world will will do its number on you anyway so it's good to be your own ally mm. so what do you think is next in terms of the trend in animation you know the field you're in like I, I know what I'm doing. Well, that's my next question. What's next for you? But I thought in the industry as a whole, like, you know, what do you well, think is coming that we haven't well, seen? That, or... I, I think that those two things dovetail nicely because if I had listened on the short, if I had listened to the world and what they had told us what was trending, uh, we wouldn't have made the film, you know, because everyone told us that no one's going to watch the movie. And of course it has 70 million views on TikTok. We were the number one Netflix film in 16 countries. We broke 70 top 10 lists around the world. And this was a 2D animated short film about grief. You know, this is not a commercial movie, but it landed in a really commercial way. So for me, I want to continue to try to tell stories that may seem challenging to tell because I think animation audiences are ready for it. So with my team, um, we're going to make a feature. Uh, I can't say what it is yet because we're still tying up the deal, mm -hmm. but it's going to be something that is um, for adults and kids and um, that is not simple. It's got conflict and it's complicated and it's got depth. And those are the kind of stories that I want to tell. And I think that you can tell them in animation. And if I'm wrong, at least I'll have tried on something that I feel is worthwhile. I'm going to share one of my favorite quotes with you about that kind of context of listening to what people want. And um, there's a famous quote that's attributed to Henry Ford, which is, if you'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so being innovative requires you to not listen to people completely, but, you know, kind of be aspirational about what could be rather than what kind of is i love it yeah i mean uh william goldman right nobody knows anything in hollywood it's true <laughs> all right so we're now at the section well where i have kind of nine what i call rapid fire although they don't always go as quick as i so just kind of off the pop topic so if and this will be interesting for you because <laughs> you are an actor but if a movie was made about your life who would you want to play you me okay <laughs> makes sense you, you get a gig out of it I mean, I have enough credits. Um, no, if I could go back, any actor in any era. Sure. Harry Dean Stanton. He was my favorite actor ever. I already know the answer to this question, but should stories always have happy endings? No. No. Um, do you have a favorite but, emoji? But even if they're sad, they should be uplifting in a, in a way. They, sh they, they should be redemptive. Okay. I like that. Uh, do you have a favorite emoji? Um, I do. It's the um, it's the it's pretty basic. It's the laughing, crying. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's Very my go-to emoji. Yeah, sorry. Um, can you name one of your favorite songs? <sighs> um, out of thousands um i could say your favorite song but i don't like to limit people so one of your favorites uh you know the song i've been listening to most last couple of days is imagine Beautiful. yeah um what's your favorite social media platform instagram name a book that left a lasting impression on you russell banks rule of the bone it's one of my favorite novels, yeah. Okay, now this is a toughie. <laughs> Name one of your favorite movies. And you referenced um, a couple already, so. Uh, I would say um, uh, there's thousands, but um, I would say Paris, Texas. My response is always that I have, if people say I have a, you know, in my top 10, there's a hundred movies. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what is one thing you can't live without? Uh, my son. How old is your son? 
He's going to be two in September. What's his name? Sonny. Sonny. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. um, finally, if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? <laughs> Anything ever? Ever or that exists or doesn't exist? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I would probably say the typewriter. Uh, I love old typewriters and um, there's something so romantic about them. And I just think that they're so cool. Anytime there's an old typewriter or something at a garage sale, I'm mesmerized by it. And I'm a writer. Uh, you're, that reference to remind me of two things. One, I don't know if you know Tom Hanks. Yeah. Involved in the app of the typewriter yeah. to make the sounds and things. Yeah. Um, and I have a cousin who's a, a junk artist and he he takes old typewriters and makes cufflinks and button covers with the, with oh, the button so with, cool. the, with the keys. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty neat. Um, thank you. I, this has been awesome. Um, it's, you know, as a story guy talking to you is, is like a joy. Um, uh, but I want to give you a chance to, if there's anything other than the, the film, obviously we'll reference, you know, uh, in the show notes, is there anything else that you were promoting at the moment you want to share with people, direct them to? Um, I'm working on a whole bunch of projects, but you know, uh, currently um, there's a show on AMC called Kevin Can F Himself, um, starring uh, Annie Murphy and created by Valerie Armstrong. And um, and I, I'm one of the producers on it with my, my producing partner, Rashida Jones. And it is, um, really smart and um, you know satirizes the multi-cam uh, sitcom the sort of beleaguered housewife and then goes into a searing single cam and it's just really inventive and you know as a storyteller I really admire what what Valerie was able to do in in blending these two styles and and making one new TV show that feels totally original so it's definitely worth checking out it's really cool and Andy Murphy is tremendous. Awesome. I'm, I'm, we're always looking for good TV, so I love recommendations and that. Uh, yeah. uh, check it out. And what's the best way if someone's interested in finding out more about Will McCormick? Is it Instagram? Do you have a website? Like where, where should we direct people to find you? Yeah, you can check me out on Instagram. Um, I think it's just Will McCormick. Um, I'm not, I'm not huge on, I don't do a ton of Instagram, but I do do some. And then um, hopefully they'll be able to see more of my projects coming out soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we will. Yeah. Uh, well, again, I want to thank you for being so open and sharing and, and giving of your time and your energy here. Um, and most of all, I want to thank you for helping us connect the dots. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.